0: Well, good morning. If you have your scriptures with you, please turn to John 19 if you haven't already. And if you do not have your own copy of the scriptures, you might look in the pew or the scene in front of you and you can find a Bible there that you might use. And this text that we'll be looking at this morning is on page 905 of that pew Bible. The narrative of John 19 that we've read this morning captures for us one of the most desperate and compelling scenes of rejection that has ever occurred in human history. I'm sure all of us here at some level have experienced some kind of rejection in our lives, right? Guys, you ask a girl out on a date, said no, straight up. Some kind of friendship or relationship is been broken. Maybe you went in to apply for a job. A job that you thought you were utterly qualified for. Your resume was outstanding and the HR personnel looks at you and says, sorry, you're just not going to cut it. There are many, many times that we experience rejection in our lives. You think back even to the old school elementary days of choosing teams for dodgeball or soccer on the playground, right? And you're the last one to be chosen. Or maybe you're the one choosing and you're rejecting people intentionally because you don't want them on your team. All of us experience this kind of rejection, but none of it matches to the level of Jesus in John 19. Even in this political season, I can even imagine some of the most powerful men in the world as they're dropping like flies out of the presidential race experience this deep sense of rejection. Yeah, you say, well, they're powerful men, they're rich men, they have their entire lives, they're cared for. Well, they do in one sense, but they're still human, aren't they? can't imagine being rejected by the entire population of the United States. For me, the closest thing I probably come to this is the night before my wedding. You know, that little thing that we traditionally do as Americans, and all the guys, the groomsmen, takes out the the husband-to-be and make a mockery of him in some way the night before their wedding. So my groomsmen, out of a sincere love for me, went to the local thrift store and bought these hideous red polyester pants that probably dated back circa 1970, about six inches too big for my waist, and so they supplied me with some kind of belt to put that on and keep them raised up while they took me out into the town, and they also supplied me with a nice, wonderfully soft, silk, purple shirt. And then they topped it off with some duct tape around my hands and my ankles, so I could not move, and they carried me to a car and threw me into the back seat of this car and then transported me to a Walmart and placed me in a shopping cart and started pushing me through this, through this Walmart shopping store. And at one pertinent time, they decided to just leave me and abandon me in the middle of an aisle, hoping that customers would walk by and stare and laugh and enjoy the mockery that I was, all the while they're standing around the corner laughing and watching me suffer. Then from there, though, the fun didn't stop. They took me to downtown, and they placed a sign on my back, something along the lines of, I'm getting married tomorrow or something like that. I don't know. It was on my back. They made me sit in a water fountain in the middle of downtown so my nice red polyester pants are soaked, giving the impression of, you know. And from there, it took me to a coffee shop and made me order a coffee. Of course, there are about 50 people in the coffee shop, and lo and behold, there are at least three more people in there that I knew. In fact, there were three young ladies that I knew from college. And one of them, I had actually taken out on a lunch date at one point. And that relationship did not work out for various reasons. So you can imagine my situation. And my groomsmen, of course, are doing this all in fun and all in love, but they're putting me on display as a mockery for anyone who sees to laugh at. And, of course, we enjoy this, and we find it humorous, and of course the next day we enter into celebration together as friends and people who love each other deeply but but the scene of John 19 the scene of John 19 is no laughing matter for us is it Jesus is mocked Jesus is rejected he is stripped of his clothing and put on a cross for all the world to see. And as we look into John 19, we begin to see, though, that, that Jesus, even though he is mocked as the king of the Jews, the reality is that he is the true king. He is rejected as the true king, as the true Lord, as the true Savior, and, and the creator of all humanity. This scene brings us to tears, and even this week as I was reading through, and hopefully this morning as you were reading, you were compelled. In fact, the, the most important thing that we could have done this morning was to read this text of John 19. For you to read this text of John 19, for you to enter in and to place yourself in this scene and to realize that we are participants in this story. One reason why I had Ethan have us read these sections this morning because it's very important that we see ourselves in the story because many times we look at the scene from a distance as outsiders simply gazing at the cross and thinking, oh, that was a very important thing. But we leave ourselves isolated and separate from that event, and by reading the text together, we actually enter into the narrative. We enter into the story and realize that we are participants in it. And not just participants, but we are with Pilate, and we are with the Jews, and we are with the chief priests, crying out, away with him, away with him, crucify him, and laughing and mocking him. And here is the amazing part of this story, though. Here's the amazing part of this scene for us, is that even as Jesus, as rejected as the true king, it is through this rejection that you and I can have life. And here's the irony, the ultimate irony of the story, that we and all the Jews and Pilate and all the Romans and the whole world, as we reject Jesus as a true king, in his rejection, in our rejection, he is actually making a way for us to be accepted and to find life and forgiveness. This is the reality that the scene points to. He was lifted up in mockery so that you might be delivered from your shame and the mockery of sin. So that you might find true forgiveness and true life in his name. Let's begin just looking at John 19, verses 1 to 6, is the drama begins to unfold. Of course, if you were here with us last week, you remember how John 18 ended and the crowds cry out, we don't want him released, that is Jesus, but rather we'd have Barabbas, this robber, this insurrectionist, this rebel against the Roman government. We would rather take him. So as a result of that, in verse 1 of of chapter 19, Pilate then takes Jesus Assuming that Barabbas is being released and whips him. Now it's here that we begin to understand something about John and his account. John does not necessarily play up the details of the torture or the, the abuse that Jesus took. He simply states as a fact for us. And he moves very quickly through it, but he, that's not to overlook it. It's to help us see the reality of what's taking place. Pilate took Jesus and flogs him, he whips him. And the soldiers that are there, verse 2, they twist a crown of thorns and place it on his head. And they place a purple robe on Jesus' back. And they come up to him, verse 3. And they say, Hail, King of the Jews. And hit him in the face. This scene captures for us the mockery of what's taking place. This scene captures for us the debauchery of the creation turning against its creator. And even the great contradiction, if we're in verse 4, Pilate then brings him out. Pilate went out again and said to them, to all the Jews that are there, see, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And the idea is that, hey, I've tortured him. I've pressed him for a confession of whatever crime it is you're accusing him of, and there's no guilt. And the the implication here is that Pilate is trying to release him. He's trying to get this situation off of his hands. Pilate says, I find no guilt in him. So Jesus comes out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, behold the man. And here is Pilate's display. Jesus comes out on the balcony, as it were, has been portrayed and, and uh, described for us, of Pilate, and he's standing there. And, and Pilate says, Look, behold the man. This crown of thorns, bleeding, this purple robe, this kingly robe. This man who is just a figment of what he was before this torture. Jesus is a mockery. Jesus is forced to display himself in this wretched state. He stands. Behold the man. And the implication for the Jews is this. Look, I don't find any guilt of him. And look, if you insist on claiming that his claim to be king is legitimate at all, Just look at this mess of a man standing here, and then you can determine whether or not he's guilty of this claim or not. It seems like the goal here is to neutralize the hostility by displaying Jesus as helpless and powerless and even a fool before these people. And verse 6, though, shows us how hard the hearts of the Jewish leaders were. This does not deter them, for they cry out in response, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate questions them. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered back, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself, what? The son of God. So here, Pilate now has forced their hand. They they can no longer hide behind the the cloak of their law with not really having any accusation of any real merit to accuse him. Now Pilate, Pilate forces their hand. What is the accusation? He has made himself to be the Son of God. Now here's the reality, brothers and sisters, and friends who are listening to this this morning. Here is the reality. He did not make himself to be the Son of God. He is the Son of God. And he is guilty. He is firmly guilty of being the Messiah that he claims to be. Just think back through this story. the story. The evidence, even in the Gospel of John, is mounting. It's been mounting ever since the first sign, where he changes water into wine. And from there, he causes lame people to walk. He tells people their innermost secrets. He explains the scriptures and talks about how the Old Testament rituals are portraying him. He feeds thousands of people with bread. He restores the sight of blind men. He even raises dead people back to life. And he promises life to everyone who will come to him and believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the one sent from the Father. He promises forgiveness of sin. See, the evidence just continues the mount. It piles up and it piles up and it piles up. Yes, he is guilty of being the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's for this reason that the Jews want him dead. Look at verses 8 through 11. As a result of this statement, Pilate is even more afraid. Well, what's he afraid of exactly? Is he afraid of Jesus? It doesn't seem like it. It seems like he's actually afraid of what's going to come next. It seems like he's actually afraid of this mob, of these chief priests, of the Jews, who have now manipulated his political power and cornered him to a degree that he must do their bidding. He sees how the tension is mounting between them, and there's these political plays that are going back and forth between Pilate and the Jews. The situation has become much more complicated at this point. And in a sense, the Jews have forced him into an unlikely alliance together. Verses 9 through 11. Let's read that again. He entered his headquarters as Pilate and said to Jesus, where are you from? This is a common question throughout the Gospels and not, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Well, why? Well, Jesus has already answered this before the people. And Jesus has already said, hey, call your witnesses. They can tell you everything I've said. Pilate's response, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? What's taking place now shows us very clearly that this situation and as the scene unfolds, it's really not in the hands of the Jews. It's really not in the hands of Pilate. But everything that's taking place now has been ordained under the sovereign hand of God and in the sovereign and loving plan of the Father, and as the Son has entered into that in full agreement, what takes place now is under divine design. For Jesus responds to Pilate's claim that he has authority in himself. Jesus answers, verse 11, you would have no authority over me at all. Unless what? Unless, It had been given you from above. And the from above is simply a way of stating from heaven, from God himself. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. And as the scene here comes to a sort of a tension point, a climax, it becomes very, very clear. There is guilt both for the Jews, the chief priests, as well as Pilate. And in one sense, we now see that the guilt lies on the entire world. For what's going to take place next. It's not just the Jews, it's not just the chief priests, though they will bear the greater guilt. Why? Because they've been there, they've heard the words of Jesus, they've seen him do his signs, they've heard about how he explains scriptures, and they will bear the greater guilt for rejecting their promised Messiah, the one they have been waiting for. But so also will Pilate, and the Roman government, and the rest of the world. So from then on, verse 12, Pilate sought to release him. He knows that something is amiss here. He knows that he will be held guilty for this if he continues and he's trying to weasel his way out. But the Jews cry out as they sense this in him. If you release him, you are not Caesar's friend. Ah, the political intrigue and manipulation creeps in even more. For everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar, verse 12. And of course, when Pilate hears these words, verse 13, he brings Jesus out and sits him down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And he says, Now it was the day of preparation of the, the Passover. Okay, we're putting this now in the Jewish context. So why is this so important? What's the theological implications going on here? And as Steve mentioned several weeks ago, the the rejection of the true Passover Lamb continues to mount. But he brings them out to the scene, to the to the stone pavement, and he says to the Jews, verse fourteen, "Behold your king. Behold your king." And of course, their response is, "We have no king but Caesar." Can can you imagine, for for the the Jews? utterly despise the Roman government and what they're doing, and here they willingly confess that Caesar's their king. What could drive them to this madness and change of heart of their political positions? It's the reality that they cannot swallow the fact that this man, Jesus, is their true king. And in fact, Pilate now knows, just as they have manipulated him, so now he's going to manipulate the Jews and say, okay, if you're actually giving this man's credence, his statement that he is a king, that he is the son of God, then I'm going to identify him as that. Two can play at this game of manipulation. You say your king is Caesar? Well, I'm going to say here's your king, king of the Jews, Jesus. Verse 16. The scene comes to a climax. They respond, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar, so they deliver him over to be crucified. The scene, though, is not one of a weak victim, but it's showing us that in, again, the divine sovereign plan of God, Jesus is willingly obeying his Father, and he's willingly laying down his life even for those who are rejecting Him. Some read this and they say, look, well see, look at this. This This is divine child abuse. How could God the Father do this to His Son? It's not quite that simple. The Son has willingly arranged Himself under this authority and agreed with the Father that this would be the plan of redemption and that He would willingly become the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. He was powerful enough. He has authority enough. The Father has given him power and authority to lay down his life as the Lamb of God so that he can take away the sin of the world. So the true king is rejected. The true king is rejected. This brings us to the the next major section, verses 16 to 30, where the true king is crucified the true king is crucified. So they took Jesus, the end of verse 16, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place that's called the place of a skull. Verse 18 there, they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So see the scene. Even, even Pilate, whether he's ordered this or not, he, he, Jesus has been set in the middle He has been set as the focal point of this crucifixion scene. And it's only highlighted then by by what happens next. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. And maybe Jesus had already been wearing this around his neck at some point. We don't know. but, But Pilate now affixes it to the cross. And it reads this, verse 19. Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Pilate just wants to add a little bit more insult to the Jews to show that he's still in power, he's still in control. I don't think he quite understood Jesus' response to him, that he has no authority unless it be given him at this point. But he's using the authority that's been given him to stir up the Jews even more. So many of the Jews, they walked by, verse 20, read this inscription. So remember, this is the time of Passover. There's many, many Jews coming to Jerusalem, coming into the scene, and they're seeing this sign. They're seeing this sign, and they don't know what's been taking place the last few days. They don't know what's been taking place in Pilate's court. All they see is a sign that reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And this raises questions of all the Jews who are coming in to the city for the feast. But not only that, this was written also in in Aramaic or Hebrew for the Jews, in Latin, the, the local regional language of the Romans, and in Greek, which is the sort of the international business language. And the implication is this. And this is what probably infuriates the Jews the most and why they come next. They say, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Well, why? Well, because it's been written in these languages, and this now is going to be proclaimed throughout every nation. The whole world is going to hear that this man was crucified as the king of the Jews. Don't you just love how God uses even stubborn, hard-hearted men to accomplish his purposes and bring him glory in the world? Because what does Pilate saying next, verse 22? In response to these Jews, what I have written, I have written. So go chew on that, chief priests. As a result, all the Jews are flowing into Jerusalem. And from there, the nations are going to hear that this man called Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews was lifted up on a cross and rejected as their king. You may not see much hope in that yet. But this is exactly what needed to happen in order for the nations to become worshipers of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what needed to happen for, for people to find forgiveness of their sins and life in his name. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. These would be his outer garments. Also his tunic. But the tunic, this inner garment, was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots, for to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the Scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. (laughs) Just to confirm, this is what the soldiers did, and John then records, So the soldiers did these things. Well, why? Why the repetition? Why the need to reinforce this? The reality is that It's just showing for us once again that these men are a part of the divine plan. What they're doing is exactly what God has predicted the Messiah would do and what would happen to Him. Once again, even in Jesus' death, He is demonstrating that He is the one sent from the Father, that He came to do the works of the Father, that He is the Messiah, the true Son of God, the true King. And for those of you that are immersing yourselves in the scripture and thinking back in the, the whole flow of redemptive history. You go back to the, to the very first sin in the garden where Adam and Eve rebelled and broke the command of God. And what was God's response to them? They, they recognized that they were naked and they were ashamed. And the first act that God did for them was to slaughter a sacrifice, an animal, and clothe them and to cover their nakedness as an act of mercy and grace. So it's ironic that here, humanity is looking on its Messiah, on its true sacrifice and true King and true Savior, and instead of covering His shame and worshiping Him, they're actually tearing off His clothes and tearing them apart and making a further mockery of Him. Here, we sang it. Here is, here is the scene of mercy and grace overflowing from God to us. He became a curse for us so that we might have life. He became the covering for our sin on the cross as a sacrifice where his blood is poured out for us. He who covers our sin is laid bare. Verse twenty-five. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, two ladies, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, two more. So there's four ladies who are standing here somewhere near the cross, close enough where Jesus can see, and they maybe they they just incrementally drew closer as we knew as we know that. All of the disciples had abandoned him and they were not close enough to enter into his suffering or to be judged or condemned with Jesus. So it seems like they've inched closer and closer and closer to this scene. And now they're close enough where Jesus sees his mother and the disciple whom he loved is most likely John, the one who's writing this gospel for us. And what takes place in these next few verses indicates for us what what must happen happen in order for Jesus to complete his task as the one sent from the Father. He will complete what he has been called to do, the mission that he has been sent on. So in these last moments, Jesus indicates how all relationships in humanity can be restored and healed. How the relationships between Man and God can be reconciled and how there can be established a new community, a new humanity, a new family of God. And of course, this only takes place because of what's happening to Jesus on the cross. He is is dying and in his death, he is bringing about reconciliation between man and God and he's bringing about reconciliation between all humanity for all who will believe and enter into this relationship with Jesus. And so Jesus says to Mary, his mother, verse 26, Woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. And this then is to be an example for us, all who are his true disciples, all who will follow Jesus and believe and repent of their sin and turn to him. This is what the church should be like. This is what life in Christ should be like. This is how disciples should act and treat how they should uh, view one another as family, as family. Mothers, women, to their sons in the faith. Sons, young men looking up to their mothers in the faith. It doesn't matter that we weren't born in the same city or the same country, or that we just arrived here at this local assembly last week or last year, or ten years ago, all who enter the family of God should be treated as brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers in Christ together. Jesus gives us this sort of foretaste and foreshadow what's to come and what gets unpacked in Acts and the rest of the New Testament as the church is established and built. Verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished. See, see, that must take place. Jesus had to do that to finish the work of God. He had to restore humanity, not just to God the Father, and all, to the triune God, but to, he had to restore humanity to each other as well. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, to fulfill the scripture, once again, scripture mounts up, this is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the true King. He simply says this, I thirst. I thirst. And so they bring to him a jar full of sour wine and a sponge and lift it up to him and touch it to his mouth. And Jesus receives it, verse 30. And as he receives it, as he drinks in the sour wine, he gives these words, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, this is how Beautiful and magnificent the story of the Messiah is. Even the imagery that's unpacked here at the end, there's several elements of this, but this one where Jesus drinks in the sour wine and he says, it is finished. And we should not miss the imagery that there's a bitterness of the wrath of God on sin that's being poured out on him as our sacrifice and he's willingly laying down his life He loves the Father. He wants to glorify the Father. The Father loves him. And this all is actually a demonstration of the love of the Father and the Son and the love of the Father and the Son for all the disciples who would come. And so Jesus says, it is finished. My my work, my words, they're done. I have done everything needed to be done to bring glory to the Father and bring reconciliation and forgiveness of sins. So you finish with the last two small sections, verse 31 to 37, where the true king has been rejected, the true king has been crucified, and now the true king is pierced. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Don't you just love the piety of the Jews? They're so ready to get this eyesore off their streets. Why? Because it's the Passover, of course. How can we have this mockery? How can we have this debauchery, uh scene sitting here in our city streets? And all the while, as they're preparing for the Passover, they're still rejecting the true king, the true Passover. Verse 32, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. Once again, this seems to be John himself. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows that is telling the truth. Why? So that you might believe, anyone who is reading this account might believe. Believe what? That this is the Messiah, the Son of God, sent from the Father. And that believing, you might have life in his name. And John, you can't pick up on John's passion here. He's standing there and he's looking and he's seeing the soldier pierce his side and the blood and water flows. And again, the imagery is is deep. As Jesus' blood is shed and as the blood and the water flowed out and the water most likely Um, represents the spirit that's being sent from Jesus as he ascends and leaves this earth. As this happens, new life can be given to all who believe. And again, not, not one of his bones was broken, and this was done to fulfill Scripture. So even after Jesus' death, he's still fulfilling Scripture. And to say, they will look on whom they have pierced, him on whom they have pierced. His true king is pierced. The blood and water came out. Jesus drank deeply of the wrath of God against sin so that we might drink deeply of the living waters that only he can give. And this is true, John says. Do you believe it? Verse 38. This is kind of a unique scene to finish. In some ways, it's it's rather odd because you have two characters show up that you're not really anticipating. One you've not even met yet. And the other comes out of the darkness. And this is to show us that the true king brings those who are in darkness to light. The true king will enter the darkness of the tomb. He is dead. And he'll be placed in a dark tomb. Why? So that he can bring those who are in darkness to light. And life. So after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Why? Because he would be cast out of the synagogue. He would be cut off from the community life. He could be cut off from society. This was a dangerous thing to identify with Jesus. But now he comes out of the secret follower category and makes himself known. And asks Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. And then verse 39 Nicodemus also.